Welcome to Sexual Craftsmanship, the podcast that teaches you how to develop sexual confidence and become a better lover using a system of practice suited for dating and sex in today's world. No experience necessary. And now, here's your host, certified sex coach, sociologist, and mega nerd, Sarah Martin. Hello, craftsmen. How are you doing today? Here we are in December. I am doing, well, you know what? I'm having a little bit of like a uh, moment. And I think it has to do with the fact that it's getting pretty dark. It's been 2020. And yeah, so I've been catching myself resting a lot more lately reading some more books, and just generally wanting to take things a bit easier than I normally would do. And at the same time, next week is my birthday, so I'm very much, I don't know, I don't know why I still look forward to it, but I get filled with this sense of childish glee every time my birthday rolls around, and I am very grateful to still be here on planet Earth, so certainly something worth celebrating. And today, I debated about whether or not to share this with all of you, and ultimately I decided to do so. Because today, I would like to share with you a conversation that I had recently with the fantastic sex coach AJ Locascio. And AJ works with women and couples in her private practice, and had asked me to come and speak to her community about a topic that's actually really close to my heart. And that is about how neurotypical people who are in relationships with people with autism spectrum can better understand their autistic partners and have wonderful, loving, sexy, fulfilling relationships. And while I know most of you don't fit the the box necessarily of being a woman who's in a relationship with an autistic man, I still thought this might be really interesting because I do know that some of you have autism spectrum and I understand the struggle of communicating with neurotypical people. And in this episode, I'm actually seeking to explain some of the really important things that neurotypical people in relationships with people on the spectrum really need to be thinking about and reframing some things that neurotypicals often misunderstand about their autistic partners when they're in relationship. It was a really wonderful experience to get to speak to AJ's community, and she's absolutely extraordinary. So if you are a woman listening to this podcast, I can really recommend AJ as a fantastic resource, and I will share information about her in the show notes. So what I'll do is I will bring you into my conversation with AJ as we're just getting started when I was speaking with her community, and I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you are able to take something from this and add more to your understanding. Romantic relationships with a partner on the spectrum. 
How exciting. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about why this is something that is just lights your fire? Yes. Hi, my name is Sarah Martin. I'm a certified sex coach and a sociologist. And it's a long winding story in terms of how I wound up working with who I work with, which, as I was mentioning, are introverted men. So a lot of the times those are going to be guys in STEM fields. And it also often includes a lot of people on the spectrum. And I Honestly, AJ, I don't know if you know this about me, but I started out my career as a sex coach hoping to work with women on erotic fitness. And oh gosh, I did not know that about you. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book about orgasmic running. Anyway, cool. and the weird thing is I kept doing appearances and showing up on radio and in different places. And the people who reached out to me were almost always men and a very specific type of man. And then I decided like, all right, I'll go with this. Let's see where this leads. And it led eventually to doing a master's degree where I was researching pickup artists, also true facts, <laughs> because almost everybody that I had worked with had mentioned PUAs at some point during the coaching process. And I'm like, I guess I need to know a little bit more about this. And specifically when it comes to folks on the spectrum, a lot of guys in technology are. So this became a new understanding that I needed to develop in order to serve my clients. And at the same time, I have had a couple of partners who have autism as well in my past. And that sort of combination of both working with folks on the spectrum and being in relationship with folks on the spectrum, once I got it, right? Because I'm neurotypical myself. Once I got it, I went, oh, first of all, this is a massive gift in a lot of ways. And second of all, there's just so much misunderstanding on both sides. And yeah, that's... I'm going to stop you for just a second because we may have some viewers who don't, maybe aren't familiar with the term neurotypical. Gotcha. So the term neurotypical refers to folks that have a typical brain, and that's in opposition to neurodiversity, which actually is a big umbrella term, and it includes a number of different things. It includes autism spectrum, it includes attention deficit disorder, attention hyperactivity deficit uh, disorder, it includes things like dyslexia, dysgraphia, and a number of other a number of other types of diverse brains that deviate from this mode of thinking that we consider typical and yeah i've got my fingers up because that diversity has always been there and it's another i don't know i see it as yet another intersection when it comes to this hierarchy of dominance inside of society. We're really familiar with gender and how that plays out or with race and how that plays out. And just now we're starting to talk more about what that looks like when it comes to when it comes to what kind of mind you've got, whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse. I hope that helps. No, absolutely. That was great. It was perfect. So one of the questions that somebody asked was, there are a couple different things that we want to talk about today, but one of the questions that somebody asked, and I'm just going to jump right into this one, was because of the communication and how things go, how do we differentiate between somebody who's narcissistic 
and somebody who is on the spectrum? I understand where this question comes from pretty intimately. And what I would say in that case is that autism is an explanation for why your partner sometimes just does not understand certain things without explicit clarification. And some of these things just will never change. So one example that can happen to some folks on the spectrum is they can't recognize faces. And that can lead to embarrassment in social situations. And it will be ultimately wasted energy to feel embarrassed about that. Mm-hmm. And some of these things in these situations where it feels like narcissism, right? Where they're seeming like they're only concerned about themselves. A lot of times these situations can change rapidly when you reach an explicit agreement. So usually it needs to be far more explicit, far more comprehensively covered than, than you ever would need to do in a relationship with a neurotypical person, which can make it feel like, are you being deliberately obtuse? Like, I understand where that feeling can come from. But I also want to point out that sometimes autism will be used as an excuse, and this is going to be dependent on the individual. So I just want to make it super clear, like, autism is never an excuse for abusive behavior, so it's not an excuse for gaslighting or manipulation or financial abuse or physical abuse. And it's also not an excuse for a continual disregard of your feelings. One really big advantage I find towards having an autistic partner is that you often can be extraordinarily blunt. So you could say directly to them if this behavior that you link with narcissism in a worldview where if this were a neurotypical person, right, these would be some of the signs that you're spotting, is you can just be really blunt. You could come out and say, currently, I don't feel satisfied with your behavior in this relationship. We need to either reach an agreement that we're both satisfied with, or we need to end the relationship. And that's the kind of thing that folks usually avoid saying to neurotypical partners, or you might expect your partner to like storm out if you say something that direct. Mm -hmm. When with folks on the spectrum, sometimes that opens up the conversation and can lead to rapid transformation. I would say the most important thing when you're navigating a relationship with an autistic person is to practice making implicit things concrete, making the implicit explicit. Mm -hmm. And I think in particular, if I think about neurotypical women who are in relationships with autistic men, I think sometimes this is a big part of the challenge. There's this gender dimension that intersects with neurotype Mm -hmm. where it can be a huge challenge to speak up for yourself and really clearly define your desires. And for me anyway, that was the greatest gift of dating autistic people was if I can speak it aloud, I'm actually really likely to get it if they agree Because there's one thing with a lot of autistic people, like a very more strict adherence to rules. And if I'm just thinking about a couple of these partners, if I got an explicit agreement on something, it always happened. So 
that's what I would say to that query, both that I have huge compassion with where that question comes from and that there's this other side to it too. I hope that helps. It does. And one of the things, because I worked with special education, one of the things that I would see often was if you understood communication and you were able to say things that might make you uncomfortable and understand that that's making you uncomfortable, but it's not making them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So take your level of comfort. And sometimes you have to just set that aside and say, this makes me uncomfortable, but we need to have this conversation. And as a female, we tend to not take up a lot of space, whether Mm -hmm. that be with our bodies, whether that be with our intellect, whether that be with the words that we use. And sometimes in this case, you need to be willing and able to take up some space to have those conversations. And once you do, then you find, oh, wow, that was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. And the more you practice that and have those conversations, then the easier it becomes. It doesn't mean it goes away. You still have to have conversations. But that's a general good rule of thumb for relationships broadly. And the relief can be even more pronounced when you're having these uncomfortable conversations with an autistic person because some of that discomfort, especially moving as a woman through the world, is it's discomfort about how the other person is going to react. Am I going to be too much when I say this? And if you pause and consider that for your autistic partner, like you might be delighting them going, oh my God, finally, like now I understand what you actually wanted. Like I cared about it, but it's something else I think we're going to talk about at some point that like putting yourself in their shoes when you understand a bit more about how an autistic mind works, you can develop some empathy for how extraordinarily frustrating some interactions with neurotypical people must be. And that even if you are neurotypical, you might be able to understand this really well. Let's say you're somebody who you like a more direct approach. You don't want somebody to beat around the bush and spend a lot of time being careful. You just want them to say it, have the conversation, and move on. Mm -hmm. And that feels really good to you. Then maybe your partner or somebody else, or maybe you yourself, you are somebody who needs a little bit more careful handling. And we need to set up the situation. We need to to say, okay, in two hours, can we sit down and have a conversation? And Mm -hmm. we're going to spend 30 minutes having that conversation. And in doing so, then you can relax and and participate in that conversation, whereas you wouldn't be able to otherwise. These are typical ways that people communicate. So there's really not a lot of difference when working with somebody who has autism, you're understanding how they communicate. Mm -hmm. And then being able to negotiate that communication so that both of you get to be heard. You think that's a fair assessment? I think that's a really beautiful summation. Thank you for that, AJ. (laughs) Communication's my jam. And that's partly because I can't say there was no medical diagnosis for my ex-husband, but he is your typical client. A hundred percent. He was an avionics engineer, very like genius And really struggled with communication. And we had to work really hard on that. And and I would say to him, maybe you need to to look into 
seeing if you're on the spectrum and maybe we need to learn how to communicate with that because there are some blocks in here. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I learned a lot about the communication piece and why I think it's such a huge component in, in relationships. But isn't it marvelous once you start realizing, I don't know how much communication with others that have the same neurotype as you, where it, like how much stuff stays unsaid or these social or cultural things that we do where there's a shared sense of meaning among people that maybe you've never like even thought about before. It's fascinated me how much I've learned when I've sat down and gone, huh, when I say I want you to be more gentle with my feelings, what does that concretely mean? And yeah, so. I love that. Can Can we dig into that just a little bit? Let's like a little scenario here. So we have a wife who her spouse, her husband is, because I'm speaking directly to a couple of people in this group right now. So we have a wife whose husband is on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and he's not always gentle with her feelings. And so she would say things to him. I need you to be more gentle with my feelings. And maybe the conversation would end there. How could we make that conversation work? So connecting it towards behavior and action in some sense. So being gentle with someone's feelings, there are actually actions and behaviors behind that. So that mm-hmm. could mean active listening. And that's great. You can just point uh, your partner towards a resource that outlines what active listening is, like in terms of leaning forward, nodding, just re- repeating in your own words what you heard the other person say. Autistic people are great at this. Like yeah, once they absolutely. know that part of what you mean when you say be gentle with my feelings because remember here your partner is also going to be dealing with the intersection of gender and neurotype too so there are going to be some things about being a man that have been passed to him and one of those things Mm -hmm. is right this problem solving in fact he probably gets compensated well for his ability to problem solve and to think in that really systematic way That's not what you want at those moments when it's, I want you to be gentle with my feelings. So instead phrasing that, I would like you to go into active listening and also set a container for it. So a time boundary. So do you have 15 minutes for me to share? And I would like you to do active listening during these 15 minutes. It can feel strange to say it. Like, again, that's what I mean about being explicit and concrete. And even though it feels a little bit weird to do that, then once you go into it and you've got that attention and care that you're looking for from your partner, so what if it's a little bit strange to ask for it in those terms? The time boundary really helps, I think, because it sets huge a beginning and an end. And what I've heard from a lot of my autistic clients, part of where they get really a bit spooked about conversations like this is they're never sure, is this going to be five minutes and then I hug my partner or are we going to be here for hours and hours? And I actually have some other things I have to do today that it can go into this sort of procedural concern and, and by going with the time boundary, like what you said earlier, AJ, that, and if they say right now I can't because I have a meeting at this time, then you just schedule it. You say, okay, could we come back to this in two hours? Like that, that's, that's how I would approach this, for example. And, and if you're thinking to yourself, actually, 
being gentle with my feelings means something different. It means I actually want, want to feel appreciated and not like my partner expects me to be a maid. This is another one I see come up sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the way you make that explicit is you say something like, I want you to put your clothes in the hamper every time. Will you agree to do that? I want you to clean up after yourself in the kitchen, and that means washing the dishes and drying them and putting them away. Will you agree to do that? I want you to say thank you when you notice that I have completed a house, a, a task in the house, something like that. As soon as you can turn it into something behavioral, Mm -hmm. it, especially because if they say, yes, I agree to that, unlike neurotypical people who, if you've had experiences in the past where maybe you've asked a partner like 10 times to please pick their dirty underwear up off the floor <laughs> and they say, oh yeah, 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 I'll do that. And then they never yeah. do. The beauty with an autistic partner is normally when they say yes, they do it. And then right. you never have to talk about it again. Yeah. Now it, it stays. Sometimes I find they remember things way better than uh -huh. I do. Cause yep. it's, we've had the conversation. It's now gone through my mind. They've integrated that into who they are as a person. And now they're moving forward with it. Yep. And they heard what you said. It, it was logical and they're going to take it for what exactly the words that you said, they're going to take it and they're going to go with it. And that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It doesn't mean you never have to go back and revisit a conversation because of course you do. But what I'm hearing you say right now is how important it is to really explicitly within yourself know what your needs are. Yep. And then and once where a lot of this conflict can come from sometimes. Oh, it's huge, right? I know that I want to feel good when you are talking to me, but I don't know what that looks like. So that's where we have to get really deep down into ourselves and question ourselves because it's a two-way street. It's not just, oh, my partner needs to change. Mm -hmm. It's both of us need to understand where we're coming from. Yep. So that a conversation can be had. And I find, let's see what you think about this. I find that when a conversation is lasting for hours on end, it's because there are some unknowns. There's some unknowns or you're getting into that cycle of emotional activation where you keep thinking about something painful and that triggers other painful emotions. And it's like a whirlwind that doesn't stop. And especially yeah. when, I think that's, it's actually reflecting on that. It's interesting because typically when you're talking to say a neurotypical person who means who's your friend or a partner who's caring and loving they know on some unspoken level when to intervene in a cycle like that. Do you want a hug? Or, hey, maybe let's get a cup of tea and take this onto the balcony. Or it's like something where we don't even know what we're doing is intervening because we can see somebody's in a loop because we've never right. thought of it that way. And that sometimes those cycling conversations can happen because you're wanting your partner to do that step in and take you out of it. And in this case, they don't know that's what you want or that's what you need. So right. just throwing that in there too. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. The last thing, because we've talked about the two things that we, that were questions that were sent in, we talked <laughs> about those, but what I really am excited to talk about, which just builds on those two amazing questions, consent. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about 
what consent looks like. Let's just really quickly here go over what consent is and then how we can use that as a great communication tool Great in our relationships. Do you want to take it away? Do you want to define consent for us here? Sure, sure. Consent is where we speak our needs and our desires and our wants and what we're willing to do and also what we would like to do <laughs> with our partner. And then we get permission, we give permission. And so it's how are we going to give and take in our relationship? That's just a very broad <laughs> conversation of what consent is. But it's really that how are we communicating that give and take so that everything is being done in a way that is respectful to ourselves personally, to our partner, as well as to the relationship as a whole. Nice. I like your take on consent. It's one of those things, right, where it's a... Uh... It can turn into a fuzzy concept because loads of people Absolutely. use words and they mean different things by it. That's actually something really important to highlight because depending on what your partner has heard about consent over time, especially with this slightly more rule-based or systematized approach to learning, especially social learning, right? If they got exposed a lot to the message that no means no, where it's that voluntary agreement interpretation of consent then that mm -hmm. might be what they follow in their mind. And similarly, if they've only heard the yes means yes model or the Planned Parenthood fries model, then that yeah. might be systematically what they've got in mind. So having, if I repeat myself, sorry, not sorry, like it's, it's something totally worth having an explicit conversation about. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and like that goes for all relationships, I would say. But especially so in this case, especially if you discover your partner has only been exposed to, for example, this no means no model. That's something you want to find out earlier rather than later. Yeah, yeah. And then it just goes back into that communication piece. Knowing your partner, knowing where they're coming from, knowing the experiences that they've had, and then facilitating a conversation around whatever it is. For example, I really want my partner to, to spank me. That's something that would be really good for me. How can I express that to my partner in a way that they are going to understand that I am giving consent to this and I'm asking if you would like to partake in this activity and I'm asking for your consent to give this to me as a gift? I mean, I think... The way you've just said that is pretty good because you've just <laughs> outlined the steps and that's it. It's making the behavior explicit, making the action explicit. And when it comes to something like spanking, for example, it can be really useful to, and this is true of anybody you want to spank you, is to try out different speed, pressure, force, et cetera, in a more test and learn environment before you go into the, okay, we're going to play now environment. So they can get an idea for what feels good to you. And yeah, I, I think, but I think you answered your own question there. I did. The, I did a little bit. That model. <laughs> I guess I did a little bit. I think, yeah, because when I talk about that and you talk about giving this to me as a gift and I'm receiving a gift that you're giving, just those words and having that conversation helps with the explicit nature of a conversation that we need to have, regardless of the type of relationship we're in or who we're in a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And that 
framework, which I, my guess is that you're pulling that from Dr. Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent. I love that, the Wheel of Consent. And, and that actually is often very well received by the autistic clients that I work with because it's a model. And then if you just tie the quadrants of the wheel to behaviors and how things work, then, ooh, and suddenly you've got a shared vocabulary, oftentimes much faster than, than folks that are maybe a bit fuzzier on what these things mean. Yeah. So on consent, a very special note, if you have a partner with autism, a hallmark for a lot of autistic people is really struggling at times with sensory overstimulation. And I hear this a lot from my clients where like they are getting some of this influence from the gender side that they should be open to sex and they should be happy that they're mm -hmm. having sex no matter what's going on and that real men have sex and they don't complain about it. Like these messages can seep in. And some of the touch that we very stereotypically associate with, with romance or with sex, so some of these more gentle caresses on parts of the body, that can be exactly the kind of touch that feels really overstimulating to autistic people. So having a conversation in particular about how do you like to be touched and where do you like to be touched is so important. It's great in general, but it's mandatory, I would say, when you're dating or married to an autistic person. I had one of my previous partners, like, gentle touch on the back of the neck, which is something I love doing with my partners. That could send him into a meltdown. And mm -hmm. that happened once. And you know what? I didn't ask before I did it, did I? Because this was just in my brain, in my mental map of, okay, this is something that's I've never had anybody complain about this ever. I've got this mental map that this is just a thing that you do. And that opened up this conversation and really drove home to me the point. He talked about how overstimulation was a thing and didn't like people brushing past him in bars, for example. But until I saw that, I didn't have that embodied visceral understanding of, oh, wow, like that meltdown looks like what happens if I have a panic attack. So please talk to your partners about touch and make sure that they're not tolerating touch that they don't like because they're inside of this, I should just be happy. The should bubble. <laughs> yeah, a should bubble. If they're in a should bubble about touch, that's because, and some of it was like, seemed really weird to me. Like my partner was like, I really like just don't move your hand, just do steady pressure on my chest. And from my side, I'm like, this is boring but he seems to like it. And how does that possibly feel good? Yeah. I know. Like, and at the same I'm a time, pressure person, so I really understand that. Like mm -hmm. I, I like just that is calming mm -hmm. and soothing, whereas something else might be really annoying. Mm -hmm. And before you go on, because I know you had something else to say there, but for moms, this is something that you might be able to understand really well. Moms sometimes get that, get overstimulated and get that their kids are two years old and they want to touch you and you feel really guilty because your kid comes up and touches you and hugs your leg or whatever. And you're just like, I can't take one more touch mm -hmm. without screaming. And I just need to run away. That's the feeling that we're talking about. Yep. Exactly the same. Yeah. And it's not pleasant. No.
<laughs> so we can also, we can see that. We can see that and learn to feel that energy that our partner has if we're touching and they tense up. It's not a personal thing and it doesn't necessarily mean they don't want to be touched. Maybe they just don't want to be touched like that. Beautifully put. Yeah. <laughs> Did I make you forget what you were going to add? <laughs> There's one, just to make sure it doesn't get missed. There is an article, which for me was like the Rosetta Stone for understanding my autistic partners and building a conversation around some of the key areas where there's a difference between an autistic mind and a neurotypical mind. It's an article called A Mind-Body Approach to Asperger's, which nowadays we say autism spectrum disorder. And at the same time, like the article is really useful. So please check it out if any of this is resonating with you. And but. do you find when you're looking at articles like that there are things in there that everybody can use in their relationship regardless of who their partner is? Yes. And this article in particular has a really fabulous section that is it's written in a way that people on the spectrum can understand, but where if they share it with a family member, for example, who's neurotypical, they'll also understand what's being said there. And pointing out some of the things that really are a bit more specific in terms of differences in interpretation of, of social communication principally and common misperceptions, like the misperception that autistic people aren't emotional. Like there's actually some studies suggest that autistic people are more emotionally sensitive than neurotypical people. And just that expression works differently. And that's what I'd wanted to, to point towards was some of these really common misperceptions or struggles from the other side. Essentially, what I hear from my clients and what I work with them on in their relationships with neurotypical people, because I, I think this is just generally useful to know and a way to maybe bring this conversation back around to where we began. The most common concerns I hear from autistic people are about struggles with subtext and indirect communication. And that includes verbal communication, written communication, but also body language. That body yeah. language can be this big blank slate. And when we think we're communicating because we're glowering or we're you know making a bit of an expression, they're not necessarily going to pick that up. And if they do, it's going to be in part because you've explained or they've learned from somewhere that combination of looks means this thing. That's, I've said so many times, like about making the implicit explicit, and that's part of it. Another struggle is this lack of set rules in a relationship context compared to many other social contexts. So some folks on the spectrum, the way that they function, like in a workplace environment or joining a sports club is that there are set rules to that behavior when you think about it. You can be quite clear. You do not go into your boss's office unless you have an appointment with them. You do not, like, there's a way to build a hierarchy of, okay, so if this, then that, if this, then that. And then once we're inside of the, the container of a romantic or sexual relationship, there isn't that same standardized mm. script a lot of the time. So, so that sometimes the guys come to me and they're like, okay, I need you to give me the rules. And I'm like, 
okay, there are no set rules, but I can help you make some for yourself. Right. And then that's a gateway in. And so as a partner, we, again, this comes back to, we need to know our wants, needs, desires, so that we can then communicate that with our partner and help set up that safe container for our romantic relationship. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. The rest of the list, this lack of understanding about sensory overstimulation, we touched on that. Also, this perception sometimes of widespread dishonesty among neurotypicals. Those are the words that they use with me. My partner says she wants me to be honest with her, but like she's dishonest all the time. And that could mean you saying, I'm going to be home at five, but you get delayed and you're not home until 530. And then it's like, you said you would be home at five. It's, right. it's very much that way. So some of my work there because is around- honesty is honesty. And if you say five, then you mean five. And that's what honesty is. Yeah. They're having a conversation about what honesty means can be helpful rather than saying, I want you to be honest with me. Yeah. But again, explicitly setting some parameters. Yeah. And then the last one that's very common is feeling judged for being autistic. Like yeah. th this feeling like their partner is always saying, I have to fix, I, I need to be fixed. Why do I need to be fixed? Why am I being judged for being autistic? And I think that pathway towards, again, looking for what's mutually satisfying for both of you is really important because if you take that approach of the pathway of empathy and then mutual collaboration, as AJ and I have both said, there can be many surprising gifts that come mm -hmm. out of relationships with autistic people that maybe you never even knew to look for in relationships in general. And I think that's where I'd put a pin in, in that. Yeah, I love that. You've talked a lot about relationships. And <clears throat> I think what I want everybody to walk away from in this, you and I as coaches, if we work with couples, that's really working with three. Mm -hmm. We have partner one, partner two, and then we have the relationship. And sometimes if we can, when we're working within our relationship, if we can see it like that and we can say, okay, these are my needs and this is my personal thing. And then you have your personal thing, but our relationship has its own thing. Mm -hmm. So let's look at this from the relationship point and kind of start there. I think sometimes that helps us take off the personal feelings that happen of being judged or feeling guilty because... I'm asking my partner to change or to do something. And I think that happens a lot, right? As women, we feel guilty because we're saying, you give me X, Y, Z, and that's still not enough. I need A, B, and C as well. And so if we look at that and step back for a minute from our emotions for just a second and say, what am I really trying to accomplish here? And the way that I've found, especially if your partner works in tech, if you talk about it like a collaborative side project. That's, I like that. <laughs> because that's taking language from the workplace that really evokes what you want when it comes towards nurturing the relationship. And it's using language that's, oh, okay, like that. We go and we look at 
what each of us is, you know, good at and enjoys doing. And then we set aside time to focus on this. Yes, exactly. That's what I know. I know how to do this because I do this in my day-to-day work. So I can bring that knowledge that I have over into this piece of work that we're doing on our relationship. Exactly. I love that. (laughs) That is fantastic. Anything else that you want to add? I think that just about covers it. And I love working with people like this. So if there's an autistic person in your life that you love and you can see that they're struggling, send them my way. Like they're very welcome. So thank you so much, Sarah, for being here and enlightening us with this awesome amount of information that you gave us today. And thank you so much for inviting me, AJ. I think it's, it was a total pleasure to do this with you. It really was. That was pretty cool, right? I had so much fun having this conversation with AJ, and it's been a real pleasure to share it with all of you here. I'd love to know what you think about it, so hit me up in the subreddit that's over at our sexual craftsmanship and let me know, was this content interesting for you? Was it useful to you? And if you did enjoy it, uh, please tell a friend about this episode. And you can also follow or subscribe to this podcast to make sure that you never miss an episode. And if you really liked it, feel free to go ahead and leave me one of those tasty five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. You know I, I do love reading them. They, they make me feel warm on these cold, cold winter days. And either way, I will be right back here next week. Thanks for listening. If you want to jump right into the sexual craftsmanship process, head on over to sexualcraftsmanship.com backslash friendzone and download your free guide to avoiding the friendzone for good, including five exact scripts you can use today. 